Hello, and welcome to How Have You Not Seen That? My name is Wilson. I'm Charles. And I'm Crossman. This is a movie podcast where we discuss films that we have not seen before, but perhaps have lied about seeing in an effort to look more cultured, more informed, cooler. We have put forward the idea that we have seen movies that we have maybe not seen. And this is a podcast where we come clean. Charles had not seen To Kill a Mockingbird, because apparently he did not go to high school in the United <laughs> yep. States of America. Um, but he has now. So, Charles, you selected To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, tell us about it. Okay, so in To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, well, the main plot is that Atticus Finch, um, played by Gregory Peck, um, is um, a town lawyer. And he goes to defend a black man uh, who is accused of having raped a white woman. In 1932. In the 30s, yeah. Um, and obviously it's a very like racist <clears throat> town and all that. Um, and um, so in these court proceedings, um, it is revealed that the whole situation seems a little fishy. Uh, and their story doesn't really add up. And there's some doubt thrown in as to whether um, the black man actually did it. Um, but... Uh, despite um, a lot of evidence in the contrary and a rousing speech, he's still um, he's still chosen as guilty by the jury. Um, and they want to appeal, but they can't because um, Tom, I think his name Tom is, the, the, uh, he, he tries to escape and get shot. Um, and there's another like subplot with the children um, and their neighbor, but I don't know that feels like hard to explain in a concise way. It's kind of weird. <laughs> um, but the the guy who they think is the suspect, the actual like uh, suspect in the the rape case, um, ends up attacking the children at the end, um, but gets killed by their neighbor. And they decide to just kind of let it slide and not bring it to trial. Um, and just kind of forget about what happened. Right. Boo Radley is the yeah. neighbor. Yeah. Uh, Crossman, have you seen this movie before? I had not. Really? Yeah. I remember they said, this has come up before, but I'm still <laughs> absolutely floored that you guys. So both I neither, so neither of us went to high school. Yeah, you both got your GEDs, huh? Taking all the, <laughs> although they gave me English courses, and I was actually never even required to read the book. Well, I've been required to read this book twice. Classes. I mean, I missed a lot of like the really common like canon books like this or like Never Read Great Gatsby, which comes up a lot. Really? I've read that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I read The Grapes of Wrath. I read Grapes of Wrath. I did do. The big one I missed was Catcher on the Rye. I never read Catcher on the Catcher Rye. Catcher on the Rye, I also never read. Yeah, I never read that. Okay, I don't plan to. The book's like bullshit. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I never read that one. Uh, what'd you think of Skull Mockingbird? I knew what happened so, in the sure. film, so like it wasn't surprising. So. It seemed like I don't know how to describe it. I wasn't like floored by okay. it, but it was just like a good like courtroom procedural, yeah. and and I like the added message at the end that like because of this like grave injustice that's occurred, the justice system is like no longer relevant or required, and or and as such, functional. like yeah. if we. <laughs> see justice we should depreciate it for what it is right yeah yeah and like in fact involving the justice system can undermine the like justice found in the world yeah and make it worse i i think um some of the it it feels it feels a little sorkin-esque it yes i agree 
Um, but I think it's actually even too clever for Sorkin. But <laughs> but but I, uh, I generally like this. Yeah, no, I, I made that same connection, and it's a critique that's come up of To Kill a Mockingbird in the last couple decades, I guess. <laughs> I, I think that's unfair to this story, though. 1963. Yeah, and yeah. I think that... Um, I think Sorkin is like an institutionalist yeah. where like somehow justice would find a way through the system if this he were would just like Sorkin. make a louder speech in court and be, it would work. Yeah. <clears throat> like yeah. the appeal would have happened in the Sorkin. Then he gives another better speech. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so I actually think that this is still good and I, I, I agree. Relevant. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. But the, I also think that those critiques are not entirely unfounded. Like, no, I think no, that no, not at all. Yeah. A reasonable route to there. Uh, how do you feel about this one, Charles? Uh, well, I definitely enjoyed the main plot between Atticus and Tom. Yeah. Uh, they have, like, some interactions in the town with, like, the racist town folk and, like, defending <coughs> the jail where he's being held mm-hmm. uh, from the lynch mob and then the actual court proceedings. Um, I thought that was all, like, riveting and, like, Gregory Peck gives such a great performance. He has such, like, a gravitas that is hard to match. Um, but I did feel like... It suffered from some, like, old movie problems and some, like, I don't know. I I thought the side plot, like I described in my summary, was kind of weird. And it it made it feel like it took too long to get to the real meat of the movie. Um, And so that kind of took me out of it for a while until they got into the main plot. So it's interesting to me that you described the Boo Radley portions of the film as a side plot. Because having read, neither of you have read the book. Nope. Right okay. Um, so having read the book, like it, it plays out more as a series of vignettes yeah. than this book does, and it like it started as a short story that occurs as like a middle chapter in the book that isn't in the movie at all. Like it just doesn't make it in there. And the Boo Bradley stuff is really much more present in the book and much more central to what is going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Tom Robinson trial is a significant chapter, but it's not centered in the not same way. Not as prominent, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. And, I mean, it is prominent, certainly, yeah. but it's like equivalent to several other things that are going on okay. in, in the story. Like, there's this plot where they go and visit uh, Calpurnia's church, like, with, that's the, the housekeeper. There's a, there's a plot where they have to, like, go and visit this old woman, the, the angry old woman that has, like, the flowers in front of her thing. Like, she has a much more <laughs> significant role in the book, and they, like, scout and gem, like, go and visit her for a while at Atticus's behest. Like, there's a lot of, like, the town yeah. in the book that isn't there's not, not space for it in the movie and they just yeah. chose the most filmable thing which is the the courtroom scene which makes sense and it's compelling and it's one of the better courtroom scenes in american cinema probably um but it, it's because i i only saw this movie after i'd already read the book so i can fill in a lot of these blanks and it's, it's interesting to come at it from the other direction for me anyway um so okay. to hear you describe the blue radley stuff is a B-plot when it's really pretty central to my right. reading of this movie and understanding of this story is is interesting to me. Yeah, it's just that, like, you know, watching the movie, it felt like an afterthought. Uh-huh. Um, and it also helped that, like, you know, my perception of the movie is just the courtroom scene. Sure. Like, I thought that was going to be, you know, 75% of the movie rather than, what was it, like, maybe 25% of the movie instead. Um, that's all that I knew had happened in the movie, right? So... Mm-hmm. I kind of went into it like looking for that part. Okay. Did you know going in that it was kind of this Emmett Till story about you know the white man or the black man to the white woman? 
Um, not entirely. No. no. Okay. I, I had a feeling it involved like defending a black person mm -hmm. in that like era, um, but I didn't know the nature of the crime or anything like that. Uh, and it was obviously way heavier than I anticipated. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that. I mean, that's the central scene of the movie. Let's talk about that one. Like, cross me. You said you liked the courtroom procedural aspect of this. Yeah, I thought it was good. Um, but you could tell that there's just like an extreme injustice. A foot. Right. Like, from the beginning. And it feels futile from the beginning. Yes. I think that there's that, like, just looming over the entire proceedings. Right? Like, you have the sense that, like, yeah. this is all... The game's rigged from the start. This is all inevitable. Right? Like, everything that's happening here. Yeah. They I keep like... handing over to, like, the all-white jury. And <laughs> right. All-white, all-male, all, like, not really paying very much attention. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I liked the way that Tom Robinson's character's played here where he's just kind of stoic and silent mm -hmm. sort of like accepting the inevitable yeah that felt very true yeah uh, to me <laughs> that, that and the, the judge that's just like completely uninterested in the what's going on proceedings yeah although you get this sense of like after the verdict comes the judge like doesn't thank the jury or like doesn't tell them that they executed their duty well he basically mm. storms off the bench and slams the door and like, so I think there's this sense that like the judge knows that this was incorrect. Yeah. And the judge mm -hmm. sees this as something bad, which I thought was an interesting little little touch there, as opposed to the DA, who's like clearly just a good old boy. Like, <laughs> and like just in on it from the get-go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love how they characterized him through his body language so much. Because mm -hmm. he's always got his pen or something in his mouth, like a cigarette. Yeah. And he's just kind of leaning back with his leg over his chair and all that. Like, he just doesn't care. And he knows he's going to win and all that. Yeah, right. He doesn't need to put forth any real effort here. He just needs to, like, make implications about things. And, like, that's sufficient. And it was sufficient. Like, that got him his verdict. Yeah. Yeah. Do they show this in law schools? They, they show... I saw it in law school. No, I read it in law school because I took a class called Literature for Lawyers in my wow. last year of law school, um, which was the worst could, lit class. You could read liter <laughs> literally anything. Right. We ended up reading this. We read um, Bleak House. We read iRobot, because it's like about the construction of laws and things like sure, that. Sure. Um, what else? I don't know. There's something else, you know, rather notable. Um, but we definitely read To Kill a Mockingbird, and it, it felt like a remedial lit class, because <laughs> I have an English degree. Um, but yeah, the first time this was assigned was in high school. I read this like my sophomore year of high school, and we watched the movie after that. Um, I, I was probably just like interacting with English teachers who were tired of the same yeah, which is over and over again. Fair. So. Yeah. yeah. Now this was like locked in the curriculum, and yeah, there was, there was everybody that went through that that school read and saw it to kill a mockingbird hmm. yeah uh, for me like the the scene that always stands out the most for me in this movie is in that the courtroom sequence at the very end like after the verdict has come and like the courtroom is clearing out and it's this quiet moment and all of the black folks in the balcony um all stand up and the reverend or whoever it says says jean lily stand up your father's passing that one always Mm -hmm. always gets to me like that one always strikes right to the heart um and i know it's like this white savior trope and you know whatever like it's it's doing that but like it it just works it works yeah. really really well for powerful. me um and yeah powerful i think is exactly what that what that was um and there's a lot of those moments i think for attic especially that are just powerful like they just they just really have um but that still land um the the power 
of some of these sequences. I, I thought that was cool. For the most part. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that. Yeah, I, th I, I think so too. Because, um, Crossman, you mentioned the like Aaron Sorkin critique of yeah. this movie, and like adjacent to that is this idea that, that Atticus Finch is this white savior figure, right? That like the way the story is constructed is this white man that has to stand outside the jail and protect the black man from the lynch mob, and he has to go into court and do the noble, you know, feudal fight against the the white supremacy in, in the courtroom, and he gives all these little aphorisms about walking around in other people's shoes. And on the one hand, of course, right, like, yes, like, <laughs> it, it checks the boxes that constitute mm -hmm. a, white, a white savior trope, but man, like, this book was written in the early 60s, this movie came out in 1963, like very transgressive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like for for the time that it's in, like this is I don't know, it still kind of like feels that way. Like it feels like, well, this, sure, like this, this is how like very justice racist. is still you know executed in this country. So yeah, I mean they're not sitting there yelling the N word in the middle of the court, but you know, they kind of are. <laughs> like yeah. yeah, like a little bit. <laughs> That's what's going on. So I don't know, did that come across? Like, it, it, like seeing it for the first time in 2019, did you get the sense of like, here's this white savior man coming in to rescue the inept or incompetent black character? Uh, I don't think they portrayed the black character as incompetent in that least. Yeah, no, I don't say it so. that way. I mean, like, you know, as you say, the, the ingredients are all there for that kind of thing, but I don't know how else the story could be told. Right. In I this mean, context, in this historical context. Because, like, I mean, part of the problem is that, like, I guess black people weren't given the opportunity to defend themselves no, by, I'm, I'm by sure, the way society was constructed. Yeah, I'm sure that the Mississippi bar did not admit black people at this time. Yeah, so like, that's like, almost certainly true. So yeah. like there's some interplay between actual historical context and that trope, right? So it's hard to separate those. Yeah, yeah, I, I, and I agree. And I think that if it just undermines the story if you make that critique. Yeah, having, having seen like the Green Mile, this feels like yeah, a lot less problematic <laughs> than that's true. Than that, and I've read the Green Mile too. Really, that's an undertaking. That's a doorstopper. Is it? I remember. I feel like it's a short story. Oh, really? Oh, maybe King. I'm thinking of a different Stephen. You're King. probably thinking of it, which is like. Well, the, you could pick a numerous Stephen King yeah. novels. <laughs> I, I don't recall Green Mile being a really long one. But okay, I might it might be. Um, that feels a lot more problematic, and in the same vein as this yes because that one really does lean into like he's a dumb oaf like he's mm -hmm. uh he can't and, do anything and magical like literally right like, yeah. Magic. yeah yes <laughs> obviously <laughs> that charles have you seen green mile i have not Dead man walking on the green mile oh, okay. it's essentially this but the victim of the story is a magical figure who can heal people with his hands okay yes and, and he's uh like has a a mental handicap. Yeah. Well, and critically, he actually did the thing, right? Like he in the Green Mile. Didn't he actually kill? No. Like he was in a. He didn't know what he was doing. Like he wasn't in his right mind. No, no, no. He was. He was saving. Oh, right. That the was person it. who was being attacked. There's a woman that's mm -hmm. like being attacked, and he saves her. But when in that moment he's caught, and it looks like he's attacking. That's her. what's. Yeah, I remember now. It's yeah. been a while since I've. Because his like cellmate is the actual. That was it. Like attacker. Right. Yeah. yeah, it took took me a second, but um, but yeah. So that story is like at least twenty years younger mm -hmm. and far more problematic. So <laughs> <laughs> so this feels yeah good even to now. Yeah, yeah no, that that that's a fair and, point. And, and I think that Atticus is not someone who's like 
he's not like learning his lesson from that's from from the the victim of these events like he's just kind of like he's just trying to do his job yeah and and, and that, that seems like we're not like wallowing in his like righteousness as a lawyer yeah, there's I, only like one moment where he's like giving that speech at the end but it's your yeah. summation you're supposed to be a little you can be a little yeah. theatrical yeah, yeah yeah so i actually think it's handled pretty well Okay, I, I mean, I agree. Yeah. I, I think this is a great, great movie, and mm-hmm. really, this is a great story. Like whether you see it in the novel or the or the movie, I think it's just one of the best that our country has produced. Mm-hmm. Um, AFI does those top one hundred lists of various cinematic categories, and they did ones for heroes and villains. And Atticus Finch was the number one hero. They did this oh. 10, 15 years ago. Really? Yes, like he was. <laughs> he was very high on the list. Uh, okay, and. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Um, did, did, did you guys see Atticus as a heroic figure? Because I, I can tell you in the legal profession, like, I don't think there is any fictional character that has, has inspired more legal careers than right. Atticus Finch. <laughs> and I, I think that might extend beyond just my immediate experience. I'm sure he wouldn't call himself a hero. Right, which is part of the heroic yeah, He's yeah. obviously thing. very reluctant. Yes. Yeah. I don't, and uh, I think what you see is like this... Like this day-to-day heroism, right? Like it's it's the yeah he does do he takes on the case that he, you know, nobody else wants and that kind of thing. But it's also this heroism of just like getting up every day and going and doing your job. And like yeah, well, I mean, he also stands decent. up against the entire town for what he thinks is right, right? I think right, it's very hard to do. But you, I think you also see like these very small moments of decency mm-hmm. that that read to me as like this everyday heroism. Right, like mm-hmm. the when they have that sequence where the um, the Cun- Walter Cunningham comes over for dinner and he like does everything he can to make him helpful, to make him feel welcome, to yeah. help him out, to give him what he wants, teach Scout about you know all of the things that he teaches her about. He takes you know his his fees in the form of you know chestnuts and whatever else it was from that dude's farm. Like to me, it's just like these little. Little decisions over and over and over again um, that that paint him as a as a heroic figure because that's really what heroism looks like. Yeah, for actual people, for people that live out in the world, like that's the tough stuff. That's the hard thing: making the small decision every day, over and over again, and consistently. Consistently, exactly. Anybody can do it once. Have you seen <laughs> um, Anatomy of a Murder? Um, I think so. That's another like courtroom. Yeah drama with like pretty again pretty Is that like the Netflix miniseries? No. No. That's no, a, it's a Jimmy Stewart movie. Okay. From probably around the same time, 1959. Yeah. Uh, similar elements, but justice is adjudicated differently. There's not a Actually no, I don't think I have some racial happen. element to it, but the construction of like what happened is similar. I mean, again, I don't think I've seen it now that you mentioned it. What, in what respect do you see similarities? Um, there's someone, there's a woman who's been raped and her husband kills like her attacker and it's a murder okay. trial for the husband mm-hmm. who is claiming like temporary insanity and Jimmy Stewart is representing him. Okay. Yeah. It, it kind of goes from there. And but it's also sense. like, like almost like almost entirely in the court. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's an interesting one. All right, I would want to rewatch it, but 
We can put it on the list. Yeah. Anatomy <laughs> Murder is good. Like, okay. And Jimmy Stewart. And like, Jimmy, we already know Jimmy Stewart is good. Yeah. For sure. Um, what do we think of Scout and Jem, uh, the, the kids in this one? Uh, I don't know. I just thought it was kind of annoying, I guess. <laughs> I, I just couldn't help it. Like, just kind of the way their voices sounded. Well, yeah, they sound like kids. I mean, yeah, but like, there's something about the audio mixing that made it seem worse. I think it contrasted more with the background noise or something like that, but it just kind of got to me. That, that, that's I, fair. I actually like the kids in this movie. I, I think that they're too. kind of charming and having like grown up in a relatively like rural area, like their activities and hijinks are felt very naturalistic. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and even the parts of like there's a scary house in town and yeah, like how they like navigate that is feels like very natural to like rural living. Yeah, well, I, I like this idea of just like the the formation of local myth. Right, like you have them. It's like that's the Radley house. That's where this guy went crazy and stabbed his dad. Right. Yeah. Or like, like those kind of things are like that's where that mean old lady lives across the street. And if you you bother her, she'll yell at you and make her make you do stuff for her. Like, yeah, I remember there being like an abandoned house in my hometown, and there wasn't the same sort of lore, but it was like very foreboding. Yeah. Just as a yeah. place, and so the, that that felt very natural. Yeah, I, I, I agree. That it conforms with my experience as well. Um, I, I like how they, how judicious they are with the geography in this. Like, we get the sense of like where the Finches live, like where Dill lives next to them, and where the Radley house is in relation to that. Yeah, I like that. I like that too. But then the rest of the town, you like kind of don't like they're they they're just like in town sometimes, and like the courthouse is there, but like you don't really have the layout in terms of like where that is in relation to where their house is or where their house is in relation to like where Tom Robinson lives and things yeah. like that. And it gives the town kind of this every town feel, right? Mm -hmm. And and like heightens the, the the sense of this being told from the children's perspective. Right? Like that they're just like pulling it from their memory. Like I I was here and then like some other stuff happened and then I was over here and then some other stuff happened and then I was in this other place. Yeah. yeah. And like the connective tissue of all that like isn't important, but like the the events Right and like th them being recalled, I think is is very present here, um, and I, I I like how that plays out with kind of like the audience's lack of knowledge geographically. And again, like even though it's in the '30s, it still feels like fairly modern. Like they just like hop in a car and drive into town, and like mm -hmm. they like get on the phone when they need help, and like so like mm -hmm. the things that we're seeing are old, but like the way that they're like interacting with them like feels like pretty normal. Yeah, well, it, it feels like a a more progressive style of acting, just across the board, from, from basically, like, they were, they were clearly directed in that direction. Like, they, this isn't the 50s, and it isn't, like, the more formal mm. dramas of the 60s, even. Like, the, the, this feels more naturalistic, and it, it, it feels like, yeah, like, Atticus has his speeches and things like that, but they feel like a dad giving speeches, not an actor giving speeches. And... I think that was a good choice. Like it, it gives it this live this lived in sense um, that that I appreciate. And I guess these all make the movie a little more timeless. I mean, it is black and white, mm -hmm. but otherwise it feels a little more timeless, right? Yeah. Oh, and it was chosen to be in black and white. This was a time when color certainly yeah. would have been available, um, and they they made that choice to yeah to make it feel it like that way. old. Yeah, and it does. Feel thirty. Yeah. I think this movie is improved by the by the black and white mm -hmm. uh, photography. 
Mary Bedham played Scout. This was essentially her only significant role. She retired very shortly after this. <laughs> um, and she was nominated for a Best Supporting Actress Award. Oh, wow. Uh, she did not win. She lost out to another child actor um, in the, that was in The Miracle Worker. But she was the young, for a long time, until Paper Moon came out in the 70s, she was the youngest nominee for an acting award, period. It's outright. Um, I think she's great here. I think she's really, really good. I think that Scout just feels like a, a kid, like an actual kid that you would see and not just like someone trying to be precocious. I mm -hmm. think that she carries a lot of the narrative beats in this movie and like is the audience surrogate a lot of the time. Um, and that's the, a heavy load to bear. Um, I think she's really, really great here. I, I like her a lot. I like all the kids. I like the neighbor kid a lot too. Dill? Yeah, Dill. yeah Dill's <laughs> a little weirdo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but he's like, Kind of charming in his like precociousness. Oh yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I like Dill, but he's also a weirdo. Like <laughs> <laughs> the, the like the the bit about him, his dad gonna is gonna show up and take him away in an airplane ride <laughs> at some point, even though like it becomes clear that he doesn't know who his dad is. Um, that it, it it's a it's a larger point in the book, but I like how they they play it here that like. Atticus then steps in as like this summertime father figure for him. Mm -hmm. um, and just again, building up these little moments of decency for, for Atticus Finch. Um, but yeah, Bill's fun. I like that he's kind of the instigator. I assume they call their dad Atticus in the book. Yes. Is that explained in the book at all? Uh, they it took a while to get used to here. I was like, is he a That was strange. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't father. sure if he like had adopted They They do like state it clearly in the book. Like, yes, we don't call him dad, we call him Atticus. And it, I, it, I mean, it's been a few years now since I last reread the book, but my memory of it is that they're just say like, yeah, we've always done that, and we're just going to keep doing it. So there's no like plot significance to it. It's just how they do it. Yeah, it's just it's just a plot beat here, and re like a lot of this is based on Harper Lee's actual life. Okay. And um, so for all we know, like that she called her dad by by his first name wouldn't surprise me. Hmm. Um, apparently, the Dill figure in the book is inspired by Truman Capote. Hmm. who grew up next door to Harper Lee. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And for a long time, there was this conspiracy theory that he was the one that actually wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, he is demanded. She, she didn't write like any follow-ups to this until the end of her the end career, of her, and there was yeah. like a weird situation. Right. I haven't I haven't read Ghost Set of Watchmen, um, or Go Tell a Watchmen, whatever, that's like, whatever it is. Set, I think. Is it set? Okay. I've not read that yet. Um, I don't know if I will, but... It seemed like a case of like, Elder abuse, yes. where like, uh, yes, it, she didn't never really intended to write this, but then, yeah, or like there was a draft sitting around, and it, yeah, and she's like actually no, um, yeah, and I imagine there there are probably her, I don't know her family, her publisher said, hey, here's a huge amount of money we could make if we yeah. sell this book that is a sequel to a beloved novel that everybody read in the I mean, childhood. it made like, national headlines when it was like finally coming out. So. I remember going to yeah. Barnes & Noble after it came out and it was like an entire table yeah. of, <laughs> of copies. It's like, yeah, okay, I guess that's that's why this happened. I mean, it would be like if like Great Gatsby 2 came out, It right? would. It really would. In terms <laughs> the of the, Gatsby. Yeah. the number of people that read it, and, <laughs> and in a sense it's probably more significant than that because this like has a movie attached to it that is similarly beloved. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I like the Great Gatsby movie. <laughs> Okay. I mean, like I, I do too, actually, but it's not. To I kill even a like the, the Baz yeah. Luhrmann one. <laughs> it's, it's not to kill a mockingbird. Yeah. Uh, is my point. Um, Harper Lee had had you know a fair amount of involvement in the adaptation, um, and she didn't want Gregory Peck. Um, she she didn't like Gregory Peck for for Atticus because she thought he was too good looking. 
<laughs> and she said that Atticus was supposed to be more of an everyman, and that that Peck was not was not that. He was too attractive uh, to, to play the role. Well, they a little bit. They do the movie move where they give him glasses. And, right, and to, to yeah. ugly him up a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he's hideous now. Yeah, yeah. What a what a gross man. <laughs> we say this is three people who wear glasses. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so yeah, it, it was almost it was almost I don't know who else you wanted to be in the role, but it was almost not uh, Gregory Probably Peck. Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> Actually, that's, that's the right quite era. plausible. Um, of course, now it's impossible to imagine anybody no. else in the role, and like this is at this point the role is bigger than Gregory Peck. Like more people identify Atticus Finch than they do the, the individual who played him. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Harper Lee said no, no, he's he's not the guy. He was overruled. Well, this is why they shouldn't let authors. Dictate their movie terms too much, right? Well, and they did. She's didn't. not a casting director. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do we think of the the bit at the end? Um, so this is Jem uh, and Scout are coming back from a school play. Scout is in her full body cam outfit. They had the ham yeah. costume. <laughs> that was so weird. <laughs> They're playing one of the the major exports of Macomb County, or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> and. Uh, she can't get out of the ham outfit because her clothes are missing, I guess. Um, on the way back to their house, traveling through the woods, they are attacked by Bob Yule, who is an alcoholic and shamed in front of the entire town by their father, um, and rescued by the uh, town, you know, creepy legend, Boo Radley. Um, and the, it is at that moment that Atticus and the sheriff decide to decide that the narrative is going to be that Bob Yule fell on his knife and killed himself and who rather did not, in fact, stab him, even though that's clearly what happened. Um, what do we think about that? There's a lot of moving pieces in that one, and it kind of like shifts the themes and the messaging of the story a little bit. Um, I thought, I thought it was interesting that they made the fight scene so chaotic and like you weren't sure what was going on, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think they purposely misdirect you a bit. So you don't know who's attacking them oh, yeah. at first. So you assume it's like Boo Radley yeah. or someone because they're in that area, right? Um, and then someone with like a light-colored pinstripe sleeve comes up and defends them. And you're used to seeing Atticus with that kind of outfit for the entire movie. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, that's what I thought was going on. Um, but you don't actually see anyone's face. Most of the scene is just looking at Scout through her through hand. The ham eye slots. Yeah, as yeah. you see like hands like interacting <laughs> with each other or whatever, right? Um, so I was surprised to see Atticus like not in his suit. Mm-hmm. And so I had to wonder what was going on, right? right? Um, but I think it's important there to not know exactly what happened. So there's some uncertainty for when they make that final decision at the end. Yeah, well, and, and Scout has been our, our POV character the entire movie and that was probably more tightly than any other moment, her perspective. Yeah. Right? Like, this is what she was experiencing at that moment. Um, and, yeah, I think if they play it really well, part of that is they're just saving money, right? Like, this is yeah. an action movie. <laughs> but um, a part of it is that it really does conform with how the story's been told up until this point and until the conclusion of the film. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that that, that worked well also. Um, I'm sorry, Gosh, go ahead. No, I, but I think that the, it's good, as I said earlier, it's like the moral center of the film. Yeah where we've seen a crime committed but the end result would be like another injustice mm-hmm. if brought to the to the courts and yeah I like that message I do too that like you need to do like just things in an unjust time yeah and mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it seems like a good message. Yeah. But I remember discussing the book in law school uh, when I last read it, and there were multiple law students, future attorneys, um, that had a big problem with that end. That thought that that they, this was Atticus turning against everything that he's been standing for up until this point. That he was this. He believed in the system, and that if you follow the the rules according to how they're supposed to be, that that is that's the only way that society can function, and that's how society ought to function. And that him running away from that is is a big misstep, and a big mistake. I don't think that's a message of the book. I think that's a mis no. or the, the movie. I think that's a misreading of what's going on here, and just kind of a misreading of the world. I think that's <laughs> like patently false. Yeah, that's the the person that trusts the system no matter what injustice right. is happening, and that's like very alarming. Well, especially the, since he just future lawyers that are reading it this way. Uh, yeah, especially since he just witnessed this massive murderous injustice. You know, a couple weeks earlier, yeah. or a couple months earlier, whatever it was, um, with with Tom Robinson. Like, of course, he moves away from that, right? And of, and of, of course, it takes somebody else to convince him of that. But I think it's it's one of it's the most important moment in the story here. I mean, it's very striking even today. Um, I. And like I was reading today that like um, the employees of Wayfair were mm -hmm. walked a walkout. They're tomorrow they're gonna do a walkout. Yeah. But by the time this posts it'll be three weeks ago. Yeah, and they were <laughs> <laughs> they were upset that Wayfarers provided beds to the concentration camps on the on the border. Mm -hmm. And I was reading online a lot of people were reacting like, Oh, I guess you like don't want beds in the concentration camps. Right. And it's like <laughs> That's not the point. Yeah. <laughs> where are you coming from with this? And and that feels like that read where it's like the, the blind trust in the, in the system uh, it leads to a very bizarre morality right well it, it, it's it, that old story about like the best nazis were the ones that like just followed the rules like like mm -hmm. didn't cause problems they weren't the brown shirts right like they weren't the people walking in the streets the best nazis were the ones that said oh i guess these are the rules now and follow those rules yeah and that's the scary thing, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's kind of what this story is trying to tell us is that there is a larger justice than just what's written down. There's a larger justice than what the systems provide. And that identifying that justice is the hard work and like finding a way to preserve that justice is, is what's actually valuable. And to be fair, the way in which like civics is taught- Of course, yeah. It, to all Americans is that like, like a good example here is that like you're taught like the presidents are good people mm -hmm. like for the first you know 25 years of your life yeah and i i think people still have like a a trust in the president in a way that is bizarre in you know any context since like 2000 yeah, so, well, yeah. or even the seven like since the 70s like we should have stopped trusting the president yeah that, um, that's the clearest marker yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. so I, I guess I understand why those people, but they, they feel very childish. Yeah, well, Their reaction feels childish. It's lazy yeah. too, right? Yeah. Authoritarianism acts very little of you, yeah. right? It's like, listen to what you're being told and do that. And, you know, I, of course it's appealing. <laughs> like, you don't have to fucking think about anything. It's, it's easier to get by. It's easier to get by, and it really is. Um, but it's easier to get by if you're like, at this finish, right? <laughs> not, yeah. if, not if you're like, Bradley, not if you're like Tom Robinson. But I, I guess it's funny though, just because this is like a book that is for children, 
in the sense it's, a, it's about children right like yeah it's, it, that's our perspective character but it's funny that the, like the moral complexity of this book is like so beyond mm -hmm. like people's understanding of morality yeah. where it feels very simple here yeah yeah and, and obvious yeah and, and i think that's it's a book so many people read in school too right and i don't know are they just not like what are they? What are they teaching them when you read that book? Well, right? I mean, I'm not going to recall the precise lessons from yeah. when I was 14, or whenever this was assigned to me. But um, yeah, I don't think that that always lands. I'm not. I'm sure it doesn't land with the people that are teaching it either. Like they, they probably don't see that the implications of everything that's going on at the conclusion of this story. Yeah, and uh, I feel like generally my schooling was never like you know anti-system, so no, they're not going to teach that kind of thing. It is thing. the system. Yeah, right? yeah, basically. So. I guess yeah. that kind of makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it, it, like you can find classes like that certainly. Like you can find instructors like that, but they're not the norm. Um, and they're, they're, if they see it, they're not going to teach necessarily. Uh, yeah, I also don't here. think that's the way that like civics or history are meant to be taught in public school because you're just like you just got to learn these, you know, four hundred facts and mm -hmm. like moving on to the next yeah. grade. And if you get that far. So to engage with like the a moral question like this, I think is beyond the scope and purpose of public education right and especially like you have a class of 40 kids like yeah grappling with all of that classroom management as well as delivering the nuances of the political <laughs> implications of this it's not sure. easy like i don't think it would be very difficult to change that but in general does not seem to be the purpose of right there's a lack, education. a lack of political will yeah yeah i think the only sequence in this movie that really raised alarm bells and aged poorly for me was that bit outside the jail, uh, which is one of the more famous scenes yeah. in the movie. Because it seems to be putting forth the idea that the way that you dissuade the clan is like, be nice to them. <laughs> like, in the moment. Right? Like, in the I moment that too when, when they're ready that. to... They, they don't appeal to like, being racist as bad. It's just like, hey, I helped you once. Right. Like, I know you're a good man, right? I know that you've, you've helped me, I've helped you. Therefore, you should not be racist anymore, yeah. or at least not violently racist. <laughs> and that, I think, is a lesson we've learned is not particularly accurate. Sure. In in that moment, it felt like cinematically, like it works. Like you have to like do that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. there's no like walking it back later, right? Right. You don't yeah. see uh, you know Mr. Cunningham still being racist further down the road, which is exactly what would happen. Right, like of course oh, yeah, he's, yeah. he's not going to denounce his clan membership after this. <laughs> like that's exactly what's going on. Yeah. Um, so that moment, I think, aged poorly. I think we have learned a lot about how the far right operates uh, within the last five years or so, <laughs> and uh, they don't respond to that in any kind of long term way. Like that, I think that is a political lesson that's a little bit more fresh. Uh, but still impacted my viewing of this movie. Yeah. Yeah. But but outside of that, I think it aged really well. And certainly as, as cinema, as a movie, it's still just great. Yeah. One thing I thought was a bit strange was at the end when they reveal that Boo Radley was in the room the whole time and he's like behind the door. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, something... I did think that reveal was also yeah. strange. Yeah. And <laughs> I mean, is. like, first of all, it was a little weird to see Robert Duvall young because I don't think I've ever seen that. His, his screen debut. This is his yeah. first role. Yeah. <laughs> It okay, well, then he started kind of necessary to like roll it out this way. Yeah, yeah, like, I, that I agree. But <laughs> it was just weird the 
like the the first like minute that you see him, he's just standing there in the corner in the shadow, right? And mm-hmm. I swear his presence there was creepier than like anything in the entire Halloween movie to me. <laughs> There's something really unsettling about him standing there in the shadow with like this like stone face on. Yeah, and I, they that, must they must have made him up to look much more gaunt and pale than he actually is. Like, yeah, it's this like shock white hair. Like yeah. he looks like a ghost, right? Like. Yeah, like he he look, he's unsettling looking. Yeah, so it, it was a little off putting. I mean, I know they're like characterizing him as the good guy in the end, right? Um, and that like you know the appearances you know don't dictate who he really mm-hmm. is and all that. Um, but it was still after that scene, it was still a little unsettling to see him like you know walking the girl like down the street to go home and things like that. It was a little weird. Yeah, well, he's literally there. She is walking that mile in his shoes, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he has that line. <laughs> Yeah. Gotta put his shoes on and walk around a bit. Um, no, I, I agree. Like he does have a, a creepy look, but I think that's kind of the point too, right? Yeah. Like because you, you're literally not supposed to judge him by what he looks like. You're, that's true. You're, you're supposed to judge him by what he does, and what he did was save their lives, right? That's that was another like really strike to the heart moment when um, Atticus Finch shakes his hand and says, "Thank you for my children." Like that's that that was a nice line too. Like that one always really works for me. Um, so I hear your point, right? But I think that's that's the intended effect. Like I yeah, think that's, that's true. what they were going for. Um, any uh, closing thoughts on To Kill a Mockingbird? No, we covered it's it. A, it's a classic. I, I can see why, and it held, it holds up. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I've seen this movie lots and lots of times, and I think it's still real good now. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, thumbs up. All right, well, we will be back in a moment with things we've seen. Stay tuned. And we're back with things we've seen. This is a segment where we talk about other stuff we've seen recently outside of the context of this podcast. Uh, so, Crossman, what have you seen lately? Yeah, so I watched um, a Miyazaki movie. Um, actually, his film debut, which is available on Netflix right now. Um, it's called The Castle of Cagliostro. I've not heard of that. Holy Wild. Shit. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so you probably that. know the character Lupin the Third, yes, um, which is like an anime character. Mm-hmm. This is the second movie in the Lupin. I don't even know. If I think it's Lupin. Lupin. It's just Lupin. Yeah. Yeah. It's the second movie in like his series, and uh, it's Miyazaki's like film debut. Oh wow! Really? Yes. I had no idea this existed. <laughs> uh, yep. And it's on Netflix okay. right now. Um, so I was only loosely aware of this character because the anime was on Adult Swim, Swim pretty frequently. Mm-hmm. And I, so I'd seen a few episodes, but I wasn't really like aware of the show or the character much. Um, yeah, cause that's like old, old anime. Lupin was on the mid eighties. Like, so this movie's from yeah. 79. Okay. So we're um, <laughs> yeah, um, it's, it's a cool movie. So it's, uh, it's a Miyazaki film. Um, which means that like the animation is like really incredible, even for '79. Like there's all these sorts of like drawn water effects that are mm-hmm. like really, really impressive, even even now. Um, the story reminds me a lot of like a Tintin film, but a bit more edgy. Um, so there's like gun battles and like romance that like wouldn't appear in a Tintin film, which is like targeted a much younger mm-hmm. audience. Um, I would say that like the gender politics of the film like don't don't uh, age well. Really? Yeah. <laughs> but I I think in general like this is a pretty fun like adventure film where like Lupin's like finishing up a job and then he gets kind of like pulled into 
Um, the next round. Yeah, the next <laughs> act, which is like very Indiana Jones style, and like his plan is to like rob the the Count of Cagliostro, sure. and uh, <laughs> he gets sucked into that. But then it, it turns out that like the Count's uh, um, need, or I don't know if he has actually a relationship with this girl, but she's she's meant to be like the true heir to this like kingdom of Cagliostro, okay. <laughs> and. Uh, Lupin's intent is to like rob the kingdom, but then like kind of turns to like a good guy and like to, like it's, like works to like save this woman who's like a captor of the Count of Cagli. Cagli sure. <laughs> um, the, the the plot is like kind of nonsense, but it, it's like fun. There's like you know, car chases and like gun battles, and they like you know scale the wall and sneak into this <clears throat> castle and like you know like all these like kind of fun adventure elements. Um, what's confusing as an outsider is that there are characters that are introduced that you're supposed to like know who they are. Uh-huh. Um, like there's this woman who's this like basically cat woman in this story where she's like another thief who's like kind of better than Lupin uh-huh. and his foil, but also his like ally. She gets introduced very randomly and it's like very confusing. <laughs> um, and then there's a samurai like character who's like an advisor to uh to lupin who shows up pretty late in the film and is just introduced you're just supposed to like know who this is um and what's also confusing is that i don't know if it's the translation or that you're supposed to know this but they call lupin i think they call him wolf throughout okay and which okay that's never explained so it's like wait is he lupin or wolf and like the same guy yeah. yeah um but otherwise i think as like a sort of like fun like adventure movie this film works really well and is very like reminiscent of like an indiana jones film but like put to the miyazaki version of that does it have like the fantastical elements that we associate with miyazaki not really um pretty like straightforward storytelling there are again like very reminiscent of indiana jones there are like sort of like false histories that they're like playing on that Mm -hmm. might are like on the border of being fantastical Mm -hmm. but but would still make sense in their real world in a like very extreme way okay um and then they play with like physics and physical abilities of the characters in a way that like would be impossible like lupin like kind of jumps from roof to roof and has like sort of batman like technology that allows him to like do Mm -hmm. these things sure um (laughs) So in a sense, yes, but it's still like borderline, like in the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the, like the way the characters are drawn are awesome, and like their characterizations are funny. And is it like the typical Miyazaki style that we're used to? It's not his like really profound like later movies, um, but I think it's fine. Just as kind mm-hmm. of like just like a fun like adventure movie. Um, it doesn't have the like sort of profoundness of his later films, um, but I think that's okay. And it's, okay. I think it's interesting to see him just have like kind of like a fun movie. Um, okay, cool. I would recommend it. It's on Netflix, um, and it's really rare to have access to a Miyazaki film for free. Yeah. So I, I think it's worth watching. It's like a cool film. Yeah, because the Studio Ghibli stuff is just not available streaming anywhere. So I don't think it's a Studio Ghibli that's, film. That's what I'm I think, here. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the rights yeah. of Lupin are owned by like another production company. And I, yeah. I think Lupin, the show, might be on Netflix too. 
So I wonder mm, if it's yeah. related to that. You can get the context. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if I would plow through that again. No, but no, like having seen some of the episodes, it's like how do you come in and out? But yeah. but I think the movie is good. Okay. And I think he might have done the sequel. I might be wrong, but there's like a trio of Lupin movies, and then I think they do okay. that. Okay. Lupin Wait, so did yeah. Miyazaki? He directed this, or yeah, he's okay. the director of this film. But I guess it's like before he started Studio Ghibli or something like that. I would assume so. It's okay. his first film, and I don't remember it being marked as like a Studio Ghibli film, but it might be. Okay. Okay. Anyway, they're very protective of his films. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't think it is. Okay. Of that. Cool. Um, so thumbs up for that one. Yeah, it's cool. Okay. And on Netflix, so watch it. Right on. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to talk about TV this time okay. rather than a movie. Um, I am not quite done with Fleabag yet, but I have two episodes left, and it's very good. Um, so Fleabag is a BBC show that premiered in, or in um, 2016, uh, starring, uh, I want to get her name correct, she has three of them, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Um, it is a single woman living in London type of story. She runs a cafe. She's obsessed with you know, sleeping with a lot of men. It's a, a half-hour comedy. Um, she has a complex relationship with her family and her sister. Um, the hook is that she does a lot of the, like, Jim Helpert looking at the camera thing, right? Like, there's, a, <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a fourth wall element yeah. to this show that where she is addressing the camera, like, mid-conversation a lot. You mean, right? like, House of Cards style? Yeah, I guess that's probably the closer allegory, except this is a comedy, so well, it feels yeah. more like the... The office. Um, it, it's effective as a as a narrative trope and as like a, a, a joke, just as like communicating jokes to the audience. Uh, the the premise of the show is that her friend, who she runs this cafe with, has died recently, and it's ambiguous how that happened and what the events are leading up to that. And it eventually becomes clear throughout the course of the first season that it is, if not exactly um, the lead character's fault, it's something that she's blaming herself for, right? And like that's the, the large arc and like the, mm -hmm. the conclusion is like her grappling with that guilt and like making the first steps towards correcting it and addressing it on a real level, right? Throughout this, there are jokes about penises and things like that. Um, Olivia Coleman is, is in it as well, who recently won an Oscar for um, uh, The Favorite. Um, and this was before the favorite. Favorite's good. Favorite's yeah. really good. Um, she plays the um, stepmother in this one. She, she's the evil stepmother uh, that has stepped in for the um, the lead character's mother and married married her dad. Um, what I find so compelling, there are a lot of things I find compelling about it, but the the reason that this fourth wall thing works really well and I think is more meaningful than it was in something like The Office or House of Cards is that it isn't just to, it, it isn't just there to tell jokes and it isn't just there to, for exposition. It acts as a metaphor for her inability to actually address what's going wrong with her, right? So like when she would have to come forward with and address the, the bad act that precipitated her friend's death or address the, the guilt that she's feeling or address like the terrible relationship that she has with her family, she instead like gives the camera a look. Or she like has a, a little joke on the side and like then just slides right by it, and that those things come together to create, you know, a, yes, the jokes, but also meaning and also like mm -hmm. character moments is really really effective. Um, the second season so far is 
superior to the first, and the first was very, very good. Um, the primary relationship in this, the, this second season is between her and a priest. Um, so she meets a young priest who entered the priesthood late in his life, and she, they very clearly have an attraction to one another. Um, and at this point, she's trying to like fly right, and like this, ironically, this priest is tempting her <laughs> to, to not do that. Um, but he starts, the, the, the great and really brilliant move that they, they pull in the second season is he starts noticing her asides in fiction. So she'll start looking away at the camera when he asks, starts asking her about like why she's depressed all the time or like what the story is with her friend that used to own this cafe. And she'll look at the camera and like make a little wisecrack and he'll say, oh, what did you say? What was that? Like, well, why are you doing that? And again, a really elegant and beautiful metaphor that a plays well to the joke, but also is about this person that's like starting to get close to her and too mm -hmm. close for her comfort. Um, starting to see through the, the defense mechanisms that she's built up. Um, it, it's really, really effective, really funny throughout. Um, the, the relationship between her and her sister is really central to the, uh, to the show as well, and to see that these female relationships uh, play off one another um, in a way that doesn't involve a man is, um, is really well done um, and, and really elegant. Uh, the show is called Fleabag. It's on Amazon Prime. It's each season is a very quick six episodes, so you can probably fly through it in a weekend if you. So it's only a two season. So far, yeah. The show? the second season just premiered. Uh, okay. W w by the time this posts, it will have been a few months ago. So this will be behind the curve. Um, but yeah, it's it's a really quick watch and really really good. Um, so I it, it's an easy recommend for me. It's called Fleabag. Check it out. Um, what have you seen, cool. Charles? Okay, so uh, recently it was the 70, 75th anniversary of the D-Day invasion in okay. France. Um, and so naturally theaters were doing, um, you know, rewatches of Saving Private Ryan. Uh, and I leaped at the opportunity to see it in theaters because it's a movie I love very much. And then I've seen many times, I think I saw it for the first time in like middle school or early high really? school or something like that. That's a yeah. lot for a middle schooler. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I had a friend whose dad really liked home theaters and it's like the perfect home theater like test movie um but this is the first time i actually got to see it in a theater and i admittedly haven't actually seen the movie in probably like 10 years or more by now besides like catching glimpses of it on mm -hmm. tv um so first of all obviously it's super awesome to catch in an actual theater setting um as you might expect the battle scenes have a lot of like you know, great sound in them. And it's really way more immersive to be there in the theater watching those kinds of scenes. And that's an awesome experience. But I also feel like I haven't really appreciated the stuff that happens in between the battle scenes. Like, I think when I was a kid, I wasn't really paying attention to those. I wasn't really appreciating what was going on there, the writing, right? And now that I can actually stop and think about that more, um, I really like the stuff that's in between as well. Um, so I think overall, you know, the entire movie really holds up well. But they have a lot of interesting conversations um, of like, you know, the squad mates being a dick to the new guy who's like, you know, a wimp. Or them talking about, you know, the philosophical value of one soldier versus another and how messed up the entire situation and, and war in general is and things like that. You know, they have the running theme of, you know, calling things foobar and the new mm -hmm. guy not knowing what foobar means. And that was a funny joke. And <laughs> I didn't actually know what foobar meant oh, when really? I first saw it. So, and I didn't catch at the end when they actually explained what it meant. Yeah, fucked up beyond all reason, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's or recognition. It's three, three brothers. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's from like a military training film. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. And the three brothers are Snafu, Fuar, okay. and uh, Tarfu. I did not know that. I've never yeah. heard of Tarfu. Yeah. Tarfu is the lesser known <laughs> brother. 
Okay. It's okay. Totally something something all fucked up. Okay. It's situation. Uh, snafu is situation normal, normal all fucked, fucked up, up, right? Yeah, and her, her, I forget the full Tarfu acronym, but, but it was it's from like a military <laughs> training film. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you know, it's about these soldiers like making the best of their shitty situation and just trying to get through it together with each other. Um, and, you know, there's obviously lots of touching moments where they have heart-to-hearts, you know, like when they're uh, having the night before, um, they're like, I think in a church or something, and they have a lot of conversations about, you know, their past lives. One of them talks about how, you know, he, like, would always wait for his mom to come home, but then he would avoid her, and it's a bit tragic, because now, obviously, like, you know, this is the medic, and we know he dies in the movie, and so he won't ever get to see his mom again. Um, there's lots of great moments like that. Um, yeah, so all in all. Were you surprised to see Vin Diesel in the film? Well, I remember that he was in it. <laughs> it's funnier now, but it I remember is. that he was in it. Oh, the, the, I do. I did notice a lot more actors than before, too, because like Brian Cranston has a role. Yeah, he's like the he's the commander with one arm at the beginning who orders the mission. Okay. Paul Giamatti is in it for a little while as another like lieutenant um uh nathan fillion has a basically cameo role he's the fake ryan that they find (laughs) um and so there's lots and lots of actors who are like very well known uh in this movie um, that i didn't appreciate in the past it's been a while since i've seen saber private ryan too but the the sequence i remember most clearly other than like the famous d-day opening sequence um, is there's that bit where the guy has like a Nazi dead to rights and he's like the Nazi's pleading for his life and he says like alright if you don't run back to you know go fight again I'll let you go you gotta swear to me you're not gonna do that and he lets him go and then he encounters that same soldier again to yeah. the same movie to shoots him <laughs> so yeah good. that was great well not only that he convinces his whole squad to let him go right because it's quote yeah. unquote the right thing to do and then he shows up again and shoots tom hanks the lesson being the right thing to do is to kill nazis <laughs> he was wrong <laughs> kill the yeah, nazis there you go <laughs> yeah that, that's it um so yeah it, I, i'm sorry i missed it that that is a good movie it, it was awesome very glad i saw it especially in a the theater setting um Oh, and the the moment at the end where the where Ryan breaks down mm-hmm. and he's like, "Was I a great man?" and all that that gets me every time. It's great. I, I was crying a bit. At the yeah, end. no, you, you should can't. Be. You can't not. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's such a powerful moment, um, and it's just so effectively done. Uh, yeah, uh, movie still holds up. Obviously, it's great. Yeah. And we don't get that much like big Spielberg anymore. Mm-hmm. Like he's kind of oriented himself more toward these like more intimate morality movies. Um, so it's cool to like see him still just like go big, right? Like that because yeah. Saving Private Ryan's a big. Movie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's it's cool that he. Yeah, they use like the Irish army to like yeah. shoot the D Day invasion. Like, yeah, there's yeah. so many just wow. like crazy stories about the production yeah. of, of Saving Private Ryan. And it's cool to, when Spielberg does that, just like let's. Yeah. But they had a little, I missed most of it, but they had a little like behind the scenes thing before the movie started. And they okay. talked about how all the actors went through like actual military boot camp. Except Matt Damon, right? I think I think that was part of it. Yes, right. Like they, there was, they built that like chemistry together. Right, and they wanted to build up resentment towards Matt Damon. Yeah, that, like they had to do all that shit, and he didn't. Yeah, um, yeah. and I, I, that's a good story too. I forgot. Yeah, about absolutely. That so yeah. yeah. So Saving Private Ryan still good? Absolutely. Okay. Well, Crossman, next pick is yours. What yeah. we got? I've not seen Dirty Dancing. That's too bad. Dirty Dancing is great. Let's watch it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Super. 
So thank you for listening, everybody. Um, this is How Have You Not Seen That? If you like it, please share it. Uh, we are on iTunes. We are on Google Play. I think we're on Stitcher. We're on uh, Facebook. Um, and we are quick to respond to all of your comments and requests. So SoundCloud, we're on SoundCloud. That's where we post everything. Um, likes and shares really do make a difference. And uh, so thanks again uh, for listening. And we will see you next week for Dirty Dancing. <laughs>